The end of the 18th century saw the birth of a long line of religious movements focused on the end days and the biblical second coming. Central to this string of beliefs was an unimposing domestic servant who began to have visions in her midlife, which she claimed were divine in nature. This eventually led to her insistence that she was a prophetess and at the young age of 64 was pregnant with the new messiah. Far from fading away after the Holy Child's due date came and went, the movement continued under several different guises for hundreds of years, culminating with the belief in a holy book of dinner etiquette and a mysterious wooden box, the contents of which were lying in wait until called upon to rescue Britain from its catastrophic end. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Dark Histories Season 5, Episode 7. I'm Ben, the host as always, and I hope this episode finds you very well and in good health. Outside of this being the 7th episode of the 5th season, it's also, wait for it, Episode 100, which is an incredible landmark just to have made it this far. And, you know, it's definitely, um, you know, thanks to you really for, for listening and, you know, getting in contact and all the support you've given me over last 100 episodes so yeah i mean it's just a little thing i wanted to mention before we start um you know thanks for the, the last 100 episodes and i guess here's to another 100 more so yeah let's just get straight into it this is the story of joanna southcott the panacea society and the mystery box religion across europe in the 18th century was a volatile and highly dynamic subject with several schisms leading to a fragmentary system of beliefs erupting from the end of the long, somewhat homogenous Catholic rule. In Britain, the Reformation that took place in the 16th century, separating the Church of England from the Roman Catholic Church, left people to fight over where on the spectrum the new, overarching Protestant rule should fall. Inevitably, with the span of the Church reaching across geographical and social divides, The outcome led to a host of denominations splintering to follow in their own beliefs, a practice that continued for hundreds of years afterwards. Some of the more moderate groups found roaring success, becoming mainstream or, at the very least, recognised denominations, whilst others, usually more radical or with a focus on localised communities, remained throughout their existence as fringe groups with a relatively small following. One example of this was the slew of millenarianist sects that popped up towards the end of the 18th century, reinventing and popularising the ancient belief that a catastrophic, traumatic or apocalyptic event would be followed by a major transformation to the world around them. In the Western biblical context that they sprung from, the belief was commonly that of an apocalyptic event leading to God's second coming and eventual judging, with those found to be truly righteous being selected to live in a new kingdom of heaven. In 1795, Richard Brothers, a self-proclaimed Prince of the Hebrews and Prophet, found himself the leader of one such, somewhat more radical group, when he prophesied via his communication with the Holy Spirit that London would be destroyed on June the 4th of that year. The king and the government would be destroyed in the process and the kingdom of God would be open to those that were found worthy. Brothers believed that he was the leader to a collection of followers descended from the biblical ten lost tribes of Israel, who were tasked to lead them back to the promised land. Brothers also claimed to possess the power to miraculously heal, and in his belief he wrote letters to the government and the king, advising them to give way to the imminent coming of the kingdom of God. Despite poor weather leading to a tremoring thunderstorm erupting across the city on the foretold day of destruction, London somehow managed to survive. A situation that might have been difficult for brothers if he didn't take credit for saving the city by successfully praying for its salvation at the last minute. Fortunately for brothers, prayer has no boundaries as he had to enact this dramatic rescue from behind bars following his arrest just prior to the foretold end of days. All of his shouting about God overthrowing the king and the government had rubbed the authorities the wrong way and brothers had wound up arrested on charges of treason and sedition, dodging a prison sentence only through his instalment in a mental asylum. 
This story of brothers does not exist in a vacuum. In 18th and 19th century Britain, political ferment at home, the disintegration of its American colonies, the Napoleonic threat from abroad, and the upheaval of the Industrial Revolution led a minority of people to find and sympathise with similar beliefs that they were witness to an apocalyptic age as foretold in biblical writings. Would-be prophets like Richard Brothers found themselves a fervent audience who would hop from one saviour to the next in order to keep their faith alive, and with Brothers full, many looked towards a new prophet who was fortunately just around the corner. Joanna Southcott was born on the 25th of April, 1750, in the small parish of Ottery St Mary, deep in the southwest of England, in the county of Devon. It was a rural community of low, single-storey houses surrounded by flat farmland, hedgerows and fractured woodland and brush, struck through by narrow roads that branched through the countryside like the fingers of a river. Twenty miles to the east lay the city of Exeter, an ancient Roman town surrounded by a large wall and dominated by a single main street that ran through the middle, lined by oil lamps. Slower than much of the country to modernise, it still boasted a thriving marketplace of merchants and freemen, along with a growing gentry thanks to its dominance in the woollen cloth industry, shipping cloth all around Europe from its bustling port. The fourth of six children, Joanna grew up in relatively modest surroundings, on a more or less hand-to-mouth subsistence. Her father, William, worked as a tenant farmer, renting the land he worked daily throughout the year, whilst her mother, Hannah, stayed at home to raise the children. Her mother was a deeply religious woman, much more so than her father, who focused on the farm rather than scripture. With the influence of her parents, Joanna was brought up as an Anglican within the Church of England, studying the Bible daily and carrying out small tasks on the farm until her mother's death came suddenly and prematurely through illness. This led Joanna to taking her first steps into the adult world, where she took a job as a shopkeep and then, like many rural, illiterate women of the day who had such little choice, moved into domestic work, taking jobs all around Devon as a servant in several households. When she was 21 years old, her father fell ill, and with her brother and sister long out of the picture, having moved away previously, it fell to Joanna to move back to the farm once more, where she cared for him for two years until his recovery in 1775. Now aged 25, Joanna moved to Exeter and once more began working as a domestic servant, this time for a well-off upholsterer in the centre of the city, where she stayed for the next five years. Life in Exeter coasted along. She visited church at the cathedral twice weekly and moved into an assistance role within the upholstery business. This was until 1880, when her boss took it upon himself to confess his love for her, a move that alarmed Joanna and sent her packing. It had not been the first time that she'd knocked back a suitor. In her younger years, she'd turned away several men, mostly on religious grounds, after she had sworn to her mother that she would devote her life to piety before she had died. It's at this time, between 1880 and 1892, that Joanna's history becomes somewhat murky. The uneventful days working in servitude around Exeter passed with little need to be recalled and recorded. She continued to work and visit church, and she courted with the Wesleyan Methodist societies of the area, which she eventually joined in 1791. At the age of 42, Joanna had lived a relatively normal, if somewhat fanatical life, but things were about to head in a very different direction. During a Bible study class on Easter Monday of 1792, Joanna told the class that she had moved to Exeter and joined the Methodists under divine providence. This exclamation did not go down particularly well, and she was promptly eased out of the Methodist society. In her frustration, she retired to her sister's house in the village of Plymtree, 12 miles to the northeast of the city, where she spent 10 days experiencing the powers of darkness, suffering visitations from demons who showed her terrifying visions as she prayed to God and questioned her belief. This religious fervour was, apparently, not as sudden as it may have seemed. 
and she had previously been fired from a domestic position after she was said to have been growing mad, a euphemism most likely directed towards her increasingly outwards religiosity. At the end of her nearly two-week ordeal, questioning whether or not she had been right to reveal her beliefs so openly, she claimed that the Holy Spirit visited her and showed her visions of the future, commanding her to write down the experience. Unsure of whether or not she could believe her own eyes, she asked the spirit for a sign that it was real and not the work of the devil. The spirit proceeded to knock three times on her bedpost in reply. This was apparently enough for Joanna, who then spent the following days scribbling the events onto paper, much of it in a series of awkward rhyming couplets, and claimed that she was the woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of twelve stars on her head, as spoken of in Revelation. When she showed the writings to her sister, however, a fight broke out between the two. Her sister warned her against continuing, telling her that she was growing out of her senses. Joanna's reply was that if this was God's will, she could not possibly refuse the opportunity. If it be of God, it will come to pass, however likely or unlikely it may appear at present. If not, I shall hurt no one but myself by writing it. I am the fool and must be the sufferer if it be not of God. If it be of God, I would not refuse for the world and am determined to err on the safest side. The safest side, according to her sister, however, was somewhat the opposite, and she forbade Joanna to continue writing while she was staying under her roof. Joanna agreed in principle, but took advantage of the first opportunity she had when her sister went away on a trip to continue her writings in secret. What she wrote over the following days was to be the first of what she would call her prophetic writings in which she predicted an imminent war between Britain and France and the subsequent food shortages. In the years prior, the French Revolution had been underway, with Britain watching on as a neutral party. But by 1792, with tensions in the region reaching a boiling point, as Austria and Prussia mounted offensive against the expansive French, the country was pressed into a coalition of European powers that aimed at halting the French march across the continent. With the declaration of war in 1793, Joanna saw herself vindicated, and with a new enthusiasm, she began to contact members of the clergy throughout Exeter and Devon, declaring her prophecies to be the words of God, seeking acceptance and recognition from the church. Perhaps unsurprisingly, not least because Joanna was both a woman and an uneducated layman, her insistence that she had been visited by the Holy Spirit and entrusted with the words of God did not go down very well. This led to several years of continued toing and froing between Joanna and various members of the church, with Joanna attempting to prove her writings to be genuine and the church dismissing them as the writings of either a disturbed mind or of someone under the influence of the devil. This long battle with the church reached a head when, towards the end of 1794, Joanne had a vision whilst laying in bed of a bright light coming into her room. The room now appeared to me to be full of lighted candles hanging in the candlesticks on lines crossing the room. Being astonished and frighted, I covered my head with the bedclothes and then saw a spacious room with a chandelier of many branches and lighted lamps sparkling with great luster. In the middle of the room stood a large table with a large lighted candles thereon, so that the light equaled the noonday. I exclaimed, what can this mean? I was answered, arise and shine, for the light is come and the glory of the Lord is risen. The following day, Joanna wrote of her vision and interpreted the dream to mean that she needed to show her prophecies to twelve men who would judge them and prove them to be either from the devil or from God. She sealed these writings up with a wax seal that she had found several years prior, marked with the initials JC, beneath the image of a star which she interpreted as standing for Jesus Christ, and delivered them to twelve ministers, making sure to impress that they mustn't be read until some point in the future when they could be judged in hindsight to have been prophetic or not. The men she delivered them to, however, decided "Mm, they'd just open them straight away, and after having read them, concluded that they were the work of the devil and dismissed them outright. 
Joanna, however, later wrote that she had foreseen all of this well ahead of time. Not tiring of seeking a believer within the church, she continued to contact ministers from around the local area and the wider country. Perhaps due to the indecipherable nature of her handwriting, which she claimed was scrawled onto the pages automatically, her writings continued to be knocked back time and time again. Even after she attended several meetings that were set up, in the form of small trials. Eventually, Joanna did find one man who encouraged her in her divine communications, a local reverend named Joseph Pomeroy, who worked with Joanna to receive her prophecies over several years, all of which were sealed with her wax stamp, and that he would open up at a later date to confirm whether or not they were correct. Of all the prophecies that Joanna made to Pomeroy, that which she found the most impressive was her prediction that the Bishop of Exeter, William Bueller, would not live out the year, which came to pass in December the 12th of 1796, when he died unexpectedly, aged 61. Throughout this time, Joanna had been gathering a small, localised following of people who did choose to believe that the information that she had was of the divine. Realising that she was unlikely to gain the acceptance of the church, she instead opted to follow the new directions of her visions to print up her prophecies in a handbill and distribute the publication throughout Exeter. In February of 1801, she self-published the first of three volumes of writings in a pamphlet that she printed with the little money that she had made selling seals to local people. These seals were small slips of paper signed by herself and stamped with her wax seal, ensuring the owner of their place in heaven amongst the 144,000 chosen to live on in the Holy Land after the Second Coming. The document, titled The Strange Effects of Faith with Remarkable Prophecies, sold in a standard 48-page, nine-penny format and included a rambling account of how she had come to receive her prophecies and of the long-running feud with the church, including a challenge for the clergy to disprove her writings once more. Now, if any twelve ministers who are worthy and good men will prove these writings come from the devil and his foreknowledge of things and explain clearly to me those mysteries of the Bible that I shall propose to them, I will refrain from further printing. But if they cannot, I shall go on till I have made public all the mysteries of the Bible, the times which are to come and what shall happen till Christ's kingdom be established, sometimes from parables, sometimes from types and shadows, sometimes from dreams and visions, and also from the Bible, which sheweth by the account of the tree of knowledge that knowledge must come to the man from the woman. As she at first plucked the fruit and bought the knowledge of the evil fruit, so at last she must bring the knowledge of the good fruit. As expected, the publication ruffled more than a few feathers, and not only of those who thought her a heretic. The Reverend Pomeroy, seeing his name included amongst the pages, and named as a supporter, found the entire thing an embarrassment and he immediately contacted Joanna with a written admission that he had never supported her and had in fact told her that her visions were that of the devil, which he cajoled her into signing. Afterwards, he promptly handed this over to the local newspaper to publish and clear his name from the ridicule and backlash that the pamphlet had brought his way. Not set back, Joanna went on to publish a handbill in retaliation to Pomeroy's claims along with two further volumes that year, eventually borrowing money from a wealthy supporter to sponsor the last. With her writings in the wild, Joanna had bypassed the church and taken the matter into her own hands. It was a move that gained her both support and condemnation. Amongst those that supported her was the Reverend Thomas Foley, an educated fellow of Cambridge and former follower of Richard Brothers, who by now found himself locked up in prison. Thomas Foley spread the words of Joanna to several of his friends in London who formed something of an alliance with her. Joanna named this alliance the Seven Stars. These men, Reverend Wilson, George Turner, Peter Morrison, Stanhope Bruce, Thomas Webster, William Sharp and Thomas Foley himself, began communicating with Joanna, laying the groundwork to bring her to London, a move that would prove to be timely as Joanna's printing shenanigans had seen her wind up in front of the Council of Exeter, defending herself against the charge of blasphemy, for which she was eventually let off with a warning. In 1802, she moved to Paddington in London, where, with thanks to the Seven Stars, 
She found an audience waiting for her who both thirsted after her prophecies and expected her to be the saviour of Richard Brothers. She met with a group of 23 men, all of whom hailed from high society, who supported her beliefs and got them all to sign a document that they believed her to be channeling divine knowledge and promptly published it in a leaflet, hoping to gain considerable weight to her position. It was a move that paid off, and slowly her followers grew until they had their own church, preaching the word of God under the banner of the Church of England, with hymns taken from Joanna's writings. By 1807, she had handed out over 14,000 of her seals, which many accused her of selling for profit, though Joanna herself said she had never sold, and continued to publish pamphlets of her prophecies. In 1812, a wealthy follower died, leaving Joanna a considerable sum of money, which allowed her to continue her writing unabated. By 1814, she had penned over 54 publications, totalling over 5,000 pages, with a conservative estimated circulation of over 108,000 copies. Though it is actually likely to be much more, as in those days, publications were often reprinted unofficially and sold by third parties. Indeed, much of Joanna's success in establishing a following was down to her use of printed media, which was not only cheap and easy to disseminate amongst the demographic of poor rural labourers, but also held as a respectable medium amongst the more well-off, educated followers. Joanna herself held little charisma, with most accounts penning her as a common-looking individual wearing drab clothing and devoid of charm. One account wrote of Joanna as lacking an eye that can fascinate and missing a tongue which can persuade. Throughout the time that Joanna continued to publish, the church continued to snub her, along with much of the wider society. Newspapers caricatured her, and they made fun of her and her followers, who they called dupes and fools. Joanna herself questioned whether or not her visions were truly holy, but with such a healthy following, she pressed on with her missions, and would very soon escalate it much further to its unavoidable conclusion. In 1814, at the age of 64, Joanna Southcott published The Third Book of Wonders, Announcing the Coming of Shiloh, within which she announced to her followers that she had become pregnant through immaculate conception to a baby that was due to be born in October of that year. This child, she said, was Shiloh, spoken of in the book of Genesis, who would come at the end of days to lead the followers into the Holy Land. The news sparked great joy amongst her followers, who showered her with birth gifts for the coming child, including a rattle made from coral, a white silk swaddling blanket gilded in golden thread, and a satinwood cradle. Remarkably, Joanna did show signs of being pregnant. Her stomach swelled, and over 20 physicians visited her to confirm that she was pregnant, with six of them publishing accounts that confirmed her to be displaying symptoms consistent with pregnancy. Dr. Richard Rees of London published a four-page pamphlet entitled A Correct Statement of the Circumstances, etc., in which he stated his belief that Joanna was most definitely pregnant. Word on the streets quickly circulated, leading to both celebrations and backlash. Most of the newspapers took a predictably mocking tone in their articles on the news that the second coming of Christ was imminent, also included letters from physicians who had examined Joanna and concluded that she was not, in fact, pregnant at all, but rather suffering from illness. Considering all above appearances, I did not hesitate to declare it to be my opinion that Joanna Southcott was not pregnant, but was told that I was the first medical man that had seen her who was not perfectly satisfied of the contrary. I believe that her uterine organs are diseased and that the breasts, as is usual, sympathising with those parts, have an increased quantity of blood determined to them. Whilst doctors fought over the truth of her pregnancy, her followers rejoiced, whilst their detractors burnt effigies of her in the streets. Joanna herself chose to lock herself away and await the day of the birth. In November, with no baby still being born, she quietly married a follower named John Smith not through love, but in order that the child not be without a father, and it was all held under the stipulation that if no child were to materialise, then the contract would be annulled. As December rolled around and the birth of a child looked increasingly unlikely, 
It dawned upon Joanna that far from being pregnant, she was, more than likely, slowly dying, the news of which was quickly seized upon in the papers. The extravagant and degrading folly of Joanna Southcott's tribe is likely to be soon at an end, so far as such fools can be cured of their absurdity. The priestess herself is about, as we understand, to drop her trade. Shiloh has not come, and no period could be chosen more suitable than the present one of disappointment for a general closing of the firm. The report is that the miserable old woman herself is dying. We are unacquainted whether this be true, or whether it is not a new trick to smooth over the deception in a way, which, leaving the imposture sufficiently undecided, for at least the vulgar roguery of her followers, may give room for new visions and new practices on the public credulity. The whole business has been eminently disgusting, and we think furious blame attaches to those in whose province the prosecution of public order naturally falls, for suffering this indecency and crime to go so far. Joanna instructed her closest followers with a series of tasks to carry out upon her death, including keeping her body warm for several days in the event that she rose from death, an event that she had earlier predicted, if somehow this all failed, then she demanded to have her body inspected by over a dozen doctors. Contrary to the suspicions of the press that the rumours were simply another trick, at 4am on the night of December 27th, 1814, Joanna Southcott died peacefully in her bed after suffering an illness that had left her bedridden for over 10 weeks. There was, of course, no baby to speak of. Her followers duly did as they were instructed, refusing to hand over the body to the authorities, instead keeping her remains warm by placing bottles of warm water around her limbs. In the days following her death, crowds gathered around her house, awaiting for her revival. Four days later, however, after she began to decompose, even the most ardent followers among them began to doubt any possibility of resurrection. And so, regretfully, the authorities were informed by Dr. Reese to collect the body and carry out an autopsy, which found that Joanna had been suffering from dropsy, a swelling of the body caused by fluid retention, and an underlying condition of several more fatal conditions. Naturally, the whole thing was covered with much gloating by the press. We, the undersigned being present at the dissection of Mrs. Joanna Southcott, do certify that no unusual appearances were visible and no part exhibiting any visual appearance of disease sufficient to have occasioned her death, that a number of gallstones were found in the gallbladder and the intestines were unusually distended with flatus and no appearance of her ever having been pregnant. The uterus was not distended, enlarged, diseased, but on the contrary, smaller than is usual. Thus has finished a delusion which would have disgraced the most barbarous times. One of the most scandalous circumstances connected with which, and one that must excite indignation in every well-constituted mind, is that the circulation of this abominable imposition and its degrading effects on the community should have been aided by any portion of the public press. It is a lamentable thing that what is intended for the diffusion of intelligence should be thus converted into a means of spreading falsehood, indecency and impiety. Joanna's funeral was held in secret on January the 1st, 1815 at St John's Wood Church in front of a small crowd of followers. Even at the funeral, the church still objected to Joanna's beliefs when a fight broke out between the followers and the reverend in charge of the service after he stated that he would never oversee the funeral of another blasphemer as great as Joanna. As with all failed prophecies, the lack of Shiloh's return left two paths for Joanna's believers. The easy route, to go on believing and restructure the prophecy to suit, or the far more painful desertion and eventual non-belief. In the case of what were now known as the South Cottians, only around a third of Joanna's followers quietly dropped away, whilst the other two-thirds opted to restructure the prophecy, choosing to believe that the baby Shiloh had been snatched away by God, transported to heaven, only to return at a later date, when the world was ready to receive his return. With her death, one might think that the life and the writings of Joanna Southcott would drift away into obscurity. Far from it, however. With two-thirds of her followers still looking for answers, the self-proclaimed prophet's death 
was the start of a saga that would continue for almost 200 years. With the death of Joanna Southcott, a vacuum opened up amongst her followers, whose belief in the inevitable and imminent end of days was as strong as ever. One of the first to seize upon this opportunity was George Turner, a merchant from Leeds and a devout follower of the Southcottian movement who claimed to be her successor, stating that he had been blessed by Joanna herself and was quick to suggest that the baby Shiloh had been taken away to heaven to return at a later date, offering a handy path for those unwilling to shed their previous beliefs. Contrary to Joanna, George Turner's teachings were anti-establishment in tone and quite radical in their politics, mixing religious millenarianism with the concepts of social upheaval and revolution. The treasury, horse guards, Carlton House, the playhouses, churches and chapels, the tower, Somerset House and other public places, the angel of the Lord shall sink all by earthquake. The whole United Kingdom is to be divided to the people on the roll. Those who are not worth a penny now must be the lords of the land. No rents must be paid, no postage for letters, no turnpikes, no taxes. Porter a gallon for one half penny, ale the same. The dead must be carried in carts three miles from the city and put into deep pits covered with pig's flesh. George Turner was not the only new prophet ready to step into the shoes of Joanna. There were at least ten new prophets ready to lead the way, but it was Turner who became the eventual winner of the crowds. And whilst the group splintered to some degree, it was Turner that gained the majority of the original followers. One might think that Turner would have learned from Joanna's failures, but having already promised the return of Shiloh, it now fell to him to put a date on that second coming, which he did following a short stay in a mental asylum that he had found himself locked away in after his followers petitioned for his release. Upon regaining his freedom, Turner declared that Shiloh would return as a six-year-old boy on the 14th of October, 1820. When the date came and went, Turner appeased his followers by stating that he merely needed to find a wife to give Shiloh a foster mother. After marrying, he gave the new date of 10th of April 1821 for his divine son's return. After this inevitable second failure to deliver upon his prophecies, however, rumblings arose in the ranks, and a new prophet was secured in John Rowe, a follower of Joanna's original prophecies and a hardline fundamentalist who took control of the group after challenging Turner's failed prophecies and enforced rules such as the growing of beards amongst the male followers and a strict dress code, including large-brimmed hats for the men and simple, morally acceptable dresses for women. The South Cottians were now instructed to give up tobacco, snuff and alcohol and to only eat kosher meat. Those that transgressed from these new rules were faced with the prospect of beatings. Roe claimed, like Joanna, to have divine visitations that started after a period of six days of blindness and sought to unite the lost tribes of Israel, which he claimed had been reborn in Britain. Like Turner, Rose's beliefs and prophecies were far more apocalyptic in tone, moving further and further from the established church. He renamed the group the Christian Israelites Church and built a strong community around a central house in Ashton-under-Lyne in Lancashire, which was to be the New Jerusalem. Rose's undoing came after several accusations of sexual assault against members of the church, which led him to fleeing to Australia, where the group continued beyond his death in 1863. Similar stories can be found throughout the splinter groups that formed from Joanna's followers. Whilst many turned towards Turner and Rowe, others found their answers in a man named John Ward, an Irish shoemaker who swept up a large proportion of South Cottian followers when Rowe entered the picture. Ward claimed to have had visions of Joanna Southcott who had told him that he himself was Shiloh. Before his death in 1837, he had renamed himself Zion Ward and made claims to have been all of the characters of the Bible, including the devil. Amazingly, remnants of this splinter existed until the first half of the 20th century. In reality, however, with so much splintering, much of the support that was hoovered up by the various groups that followed Joanna's death paled in comparison to the level seen while she was alive. At least, that was until 1907, 
when a new chapter emerged, devoted to Joanna's original teachings that would push the South Cotian belief into the 20th century and beyond. Mabel Andrews was born in South London in 1866. Living a well-to-do, middle-class life with ties to the literary world until her father's death when she was only nine years old. Her mother, who had a disability, found it impossible to look after the family alone and her aunt took over much of the financial burden, especially of Mabel's education, which befitted her family's middle-class status. After her schooling, she married an Anglican vicar named Arthur Baltrop and the couple had four children together choosing to move out of London to Bedford in 1904 under advice from her sister-in-law who thought that the quality of schools in the area would benefit the children. Two years after the move, however, Arthur passed away suddenly due to an undiagnosed brain tumour, leaving Mabel to bury herself in religious study as a way to deal with her grief. After a diagnosis of chronic melancholia, stemming from the fact that she believed herself to be the source of all the ills in the world, she was handed a stay in the Three Counties Mental Asylum. Once she was released, Mabel once again relied on her aunt to help her find her feet in her home at 12 Albany Road in Bedford, where she reviewed theological literature under a male pseudonym. In 1913, Mabel began communicating with a like-minded group of Bedford ladies, mostly on the topic of the prophecies and beliefs of Joanna Southcott. With the First World War looming over the horizon, Talk of the end of days was once more falling back into fashion, with Mabel finding it especially comforting, possibly enhanced by the loss of her eldest son who died fighting in the war. Soon, Mabel came to believe that she herself was the embodiment of Shiloh and began receiving divine communications at 5.30pm on the dot daily. The small group of Salcottians in Bedford named their group the Community of the Holy Ghost and went somewhat off the deep end, believing that Bedford, a relatively small agricultural town with a population of 35,000 and an industry focused on farming machinery and bricks, was a new Glastonbury, the Garden of Eden and a sacred centre of Britain. Mabel changed her name to Octavia, a name much more befitting of a messiah, and appointed Emily Goodwin as the Divine Mother. As well as this, she also appointed 12 apostles, at the same time setting up the New Jerusalem on Albany Road with their followers buying up adjacent properties to create their own community. One house was purchased in preparation for a second coming, furnished and looked after for the imminent return of the Lord. Octavia, now firmly ensconced as the daughter of God, enacted a strict regime amongst her followers that focused on good manners and they were instructed on all the intricacies of middle-class Edwardian etiquette, from how to lay a table depending on the situation, to how to eat toast quietly. Nightly, the members were to ruminate on their failings, write them down, and submit them to Octavia for scrutiny. In 1923, the group took on a somewhat new, more supernatural direction, when Octavia came to the realisation that her breath had miraculous healing powers. Somewhat similar to Joanna's seals, Octavia instructed the group to cut up reams of linen into small squares, which were then dipped into water and breathed upon by Octavia to be distributed as healing squares imbued with the breath of prayer. It was also around this time that Octavia began believing that her dead husband had in fact been Jesus himself. With the new ability to heal via Octavia's breath, the group changed their name to the Panacea Society and sent the small one-inch squares out worldwide, eventually totalling over 130,000 recipients. Along with the crisis of the First World War, another reason for the Panacea Society's apparent popularity was its female-centric doctrine that hit at the same time as the suffragette movement. The society was founded and run solely by women and preached the concept that the Holy Trinity was in fact a holy quaternity, with the addition of the goddess. With the group gaining in popularity, one of their earliest missions was focused around a strange artefact known as Joanna Southcott's box, a large wooden trunk that had apparently been filled with Joanna's prophecies and sealed up with strict instructions 
that it should only be opened when the country was facing a national crisis, and then only in the presence of 24 bishops of the Church of England. The group, claiming to be in possession of the box, began campaigning heavily for the church to organise the bishops needed to open the box, as per the instructions, and they even purchased a house in Albany Road specifically for the purpose, including furnishing a meeting room where the bishops could open the box and ponder its contents, which would, purportedly, save the day and usher in the new age. They took out several advertisements in national newspapers, as well as large billboards pasted onto the sides of buses with their message calling out for the bishops to gather for the deed, but none were ever forthcoming. This mission took a curious bent in 1927 when Harry Price, ghost hunter and all-round psychical investigator, claimed to have been sent a metal-bound walnut coffer which the sender assured him was the fabled box belonging to Joanna Southcott. The sender said he had employed a brother and a sister as servants whose mother had been a close confidant with Joanna Southcott and had been entrusted with the box directly from Joanna on her deathbed. After the death of his servants, the box had been passed on to him. It was somewhat of a white elephant to me. I intended to provide for the disposal of the box in my will, but my private affairs compelling me to live abroad for a protracted period, I have dispersed my effects in this country and have much pleasure in making your officials the custodians of the Joanna Southcott's box. I am sending it to you, because I was so interested in the case of the Austrian girl Zugen which you took up. If your board refuses to accept the trusteeship of the box, may I suggest that it be sent to their clergy, e.g. the Archbishop of Canterbury, who appear to be interested parties. The anonymous sender was aware of the Panacea Society, but thought it more fitting to send it to a corporate body to open the box, presumably under the belief that they would be more likely to open it with less bias and have a less invested interest. The sender himself wished to remain completely anonymous and he wanted no publicity from the opening of the box, but merely, he said, wanted to satisfy a curiosity. Price was thrilled to have the chance at not only opening the box, but beforehand of subjecting it to various tests. The first of these tests was psychometry, a practice of mediumship whereby the medium touches an object to divine its origin. Price had 10 such mediums touch the box and give their opinions of what it was and what it may contain, some of which came alarmingly close to the truth, with several guessing it withheld prophecies of some nature. The next step for Price was to x-ray the box in the National Laboratory of Psychical Research, taking five 15 by 12 inch negatives from various angles. The x-ray pictures came out exceedingly well, and we all had a good laugh at the articles we saw silhouetted in my radiographs. There was no mistaking what a few of the objects were, but some of the shadows puzzled us owing to all sorts of false visual judgments as to the real size, direction and shape of the objects depicted. But we made out the following articles, which form part of the contents of the famous box. An old horse pistol, not cocked, date about 1814. Dice box double-ended fob purse made of steel beads, coins in the purse, a bone puzzle with rings, books, one with metal clasps, a framed painting or miniature, pair of gold inlaid earrings, a cameo or worked pebble. In addition, we got the silhouettes or shadows of the lockbox, the steel bands which surrounded it, and the handmade nails with which the portions of the box were fastened together. With little else to do but open the box, Price then wrote to three archbishops and 80 bishops. As your lordship knows, a considerable body of the superstitious tradition has grown up around this box, supposed to contain a divine revelation. The box could, of course, be opened without any formality. One feels, however, a natural reluctance to violating the definite wishes of a dying woman, no matter how misguided. We should like to open the box in circumstances as nearly as possible in accordance with their dying injunctions. On July the 11th, 1927, at the Hall Memorial Hall in Westminster, Price then set to opening the box to much public interest. The hall was packed with people keen to see what Joanna had left to save the world during its most dire moment, including several members of South Cotian groups who created a level of protest, claiming the opening to be sacrilege. Despite this, 
The box was opened in the presence of the Bishop of Grantham and the Bishop of Crediton's son, who was standing in for his father. The two bishops alone were apparently as near as possible in accordance to Joanna's dying injunctions like he had wished. I picked up a heavy pair of metal shears and proceeded to cut the two steel bands which encircled the box. After I had cut the bands and the faded silk tapes, I prized open the lid with a jemmy and asked the Bishop of Grantham to remove the contents, one by one, at the same time as I gave a description of the articles to the excited audience below me. I was not aware of any particular sensation as I opened the box or helped to remove the contents, but one paper said I opened the box gingerly, another paper declared I removed the contents with trembling fingers, while a third reporter remarked on the growing scorn of my face as I realised that the objects were. All of these accounts were inaccurate. I opened the box unconcernedly as if it had been a box of chocolates and as for being scornful of the contents, I at once realised that they were of real antiquarian interest and of no little intrinsic value. The audience, like those on the platform, could not help being struck by the way in which the X-ray photographs had given us clues to the objects found in the box. All our deductions were correct. The pamphlets, books, etc., indicated by shadows, were not clearly discernible in my radiographs, but the solid objects were all as I anticipated. It is impossible to give a complete list of every object. There were 56 articles in the box, but among the books I will mention The Surprises of Love, Exemplified in the Romance of a Day, or An Adventure in Greenwich Park Last Easter, The Romance of an Evening, or Who Would Have Thought It. This was published in 1765 and had annotations by Joanna. There were The Riders British Merlin, London, 1715, The Calendar de la Cour, Paris, 1773, and Ovid's Metamorphosis, London, 1794. This was rather a worldly collection for a religious ecstatic. There was a lottery ticket for 1796 and a piece of paper printed on the River Thames, February 3rd, 1814, in the green silk double-ended fob purse covered with cut steel beads were a great number of silver and copper coins and tokens, ranging from a William and Mary twopence Maundy piece to a halfpence male coach token. Some of these coins are rare. Among the miscellaneous objects were the horse pistol, rusty and quite innocuous, a miniature case turned ivory dice cup, a bone puzzle, a woman's embroidered nightcap, a pair of tortoise shell and inlaid gold drop earrings, and a set of brass money weights. If someone had put the collection before me and, without telling me their history, I would have hazarded a guess that they belonged to some old roux or gambler. If Joanna's box truly was intended to save the world in its last moments, or usher in a new era, then staring at the odd collection of objects, one could only be perplexed at exactly how this was to take place, and what aid the objects would be. Naturally, the South Cotian groups, including the Panacea Society, criticised Price for being a renowned self-publicist, well assured that the entire affair had been nothing more than a fraud carried out as part of a publicity stunt. The Panacea Society themselves claimed to be in possession of the real box and continued to campaign for its opening in front of the prerequisite 24 bishops for several decades. In 1934, Octavia put an end to the Panacean's belief of her immortality when she passed away on the 16th of October. Though, much like in the case of Joanna Southcott, her body was kept for four days before they gave up any hope of divine resurrection. Even after Octavia's death, the Panacea Society continued. In 1965, when official records stopped, it had a following of just 21 members. The group maintained their headquarters in Albany Road, with Octavia's house being kept in a kind of stasis, awaiting her eventual return. The house two doors down, nicknamed The Ark, which was originally reserved for Jesus' return, was meticulously maintained right up until 2012 when Ruth Klein, the last surviving member of the group, passed away. In an interview just before her death, she told of how the house was kept. We've had it completely refurbished. New carpets, curtains. You may well ask, does God need a shower? He will have a radiant body, so I don't think he will. But we've prepared it as a normal house anyway. Whether or not Joanna Southcott truly believed in her divinity, or whether she was a simple fraud, is a complex question. 
She appears to have had sporadic moments where she questioned in the communications she received were truly from God or from the devil, a conflict that seemed a recurring theme for many years in her earliest writings. Was her early insistence on the judgments from the church also a play by Joanna to obtain her own peace of mind? If this was the case, it suggests that Joanna truly believed, at least, that the communications she received were not of her own making. On the other hand, those that criticised Joanna point to her will where she stipulated that all the gifts given to her for the baby Shiloh be returned to their original owners, which seemed to suggest that she knew that he would not come. Joanna appears to have made a great deal of her life, from humble beginnings to the leader of a fanatical group of followers with no financial burdens to speak of. Her writings are certainly fanatical enough to suggest that she was deluded of her own beliefs, but the profiteering that inevitably followed will always give rise to a degree of cynicism amongst the sceptical, and it opens up a line of thought that was as strong during Joanna's life as it is today. In 2012, the Panasha Society changed its name to the Panasha Charitable Trust. As a charity, they run a museum, an archive in a Victorian house that was once part of the Bedford headquarters, with the aim of keeping the history of the society alive. They also sponsor academic research into non-partisan, prophetic and millenarian movements and run a grant programme for Bedford and the local area, supporting various mental health and hospice charities, groups and initiatives. In 2012, they were the owner of over £3 million in assets, presumably property. If Joanna's box really was opened up by Price in 1927, remains to be seen. The Panasha Society always claimed to have possession of what they called the real true box, and as far as anyone's still aware, it still exists in a secret location in Bedford, awaiting the true end of days. So that was the long winding story of the South Cotian movement. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about that after this little bit of capitalism. Forbidden history, grisly ghosts, monstrous cryptids, and harrowing folklore dominate Japan's history and culture. Mysterious Japan is a bi-weekly podcast presenting these spine-chilling horror stories, urban legends, and unbelievable histories in a campfire story format. Many of these tales have never been presented in English before. Our journey takes place where dark history and supernatural folklore collide. Mysterious Japan is produced, written, and translated by recognized Japan expert Dr. Heath Avey. Season 1 relates the unbelievable legends and ghost stories from the so-called suicide forest. Listen to Mysterious Japan for free on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at our website at themysteriousjapan.com and be transported by unbelievable stories where the lines between reality and folklore become blurred in the shadowlands of Japan. Once again, that's themysteriousjapan.com. Thanks for listening to Dark Histories. This podcast is entirely independent and funded by myself and listener support. So in order to do that, I need to run a few ads. Our long-time advertising partner is Audible, and the reason I've stuck with them for so long is that they offer a service that I actually use and enjoy myself. And I do think it actually offers value to people like myself who enjoy podcasts. If you're unaware of what Audible is, it's an audiobook subscription service which charges a monthly fee in return for one credit, which you're free to spend on any audiobook you like. The catalogue is huge, multilingual and covers everything from fiction to series of lectures. They have an iOS, Android and web app and if you use more than one, they all sync up together so that you can listen on any of your devices without having to skip about. If you ever feel like you want to take a break from the subscription, you can do so and you get to keep all your previously bought books and when you get into a drought, you can just fire it up again and start gaining credits seamlessly. Some of my favourite books on there to date are The Complete Sherlock Holmes, which is read by Stephen Fry. And they've also got the original Exorcist book and just a huge history back catalogue. And I've really enjoyed all of those, basically. So if this sounds like something you might be interested in, head over to audible.com forward slash dark histories. And that's dark histories, all one word. 
And you can start a free trial that offers a monthly subscription with one free credit so that you can instantly pick an audiobook of your choice. If at the end of the trial, you feel like it's not really for you, you can just cancel it and it's cost you nothing and you get to keep your free book. So once again, that's audible.com forward slash dark histories, or you can find the link in the show notes. So earlier I mentioned listener support and there are a ton of ways that you can get involved and support Dark Histories. The main way is to become a Patreon patron. If you listen to a lot of podcasts, I'm sure you're familiar by now. But for those not so much, Patreon is a way to make a monthly pledge in return for some small perks. On the Dark Histories Patreon, I set my pledges as low as I can really with options for one, three and five dollars per month. And for that, You gain things like early access episodes without these horrible ads, PDF notes and resources that I make and find during my research for each episode. There's also access to the live stream archives and more. So if you enjoy the show and you think it's worth it to you, hop over to darkhistories.com and you can find all the ways that you can support, including our Patreon, or just check out the links in the show notes. If none of that appeals, then sharing it around with all your friends and family is equally as helpful and just as much appreciated. So if you're here, then thanks so much for not skipping the ads with that 30 second skip button and giving my hard sell a listen. I'll let you get back to the episode. Cheers. Welcome back. Thanks very much for, for listening. I hope you enjoyed the story. Uh, I, I really enjoyed researching this one. I thought it was a, a, a really interesting story. I thought the whole South Cotia movement was completely insane, um, but I thought it was really interesting. One of the things that I, I looked up and, and, and did in my research, which I didn't go into in the episode because it, it just is really outside of the scope of the South Cotian thing, is how actually this kind of like idea that the world will end and then sort of re- be reborn anew is actually a, a, a kind of belief that, like I say, it spans all sorts of religions and all sorts of culture and and, and everything. And and that was really interesting. I, I certainly recommend, like, you know, if you if you read about Joanna Southcott more after this episode or, or if you've read about her before and, you know, if, if this spurs you to read more, I certainly recommend, like, reading about that idea of, of kind of death and rebirth and destruction and re, re, rebuilding kind of thing. Because um, that's fascinating how, yeah, it... it, it has spanned centuries um i say across like the entire world basically uh, and 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 completely different cultures which i I say i found that really fascinating and and probably the other thing that i found really fascinating um like i say if you want to sort of say further reading if you like um is how joanna southcott apparently was like really really not charismatic at all because normally you have these kind of leaders of cults they're always charismatic people aren't they but Joanna apparently was not at all. It's difficult because on one hand, I think there was a lot of scorn placed upon her purely because she was a female and she was sort of uneducated. I think that really was pushed a lot of like bias against her. But at the same time, I think she didn't seem particularly charismatic. It, it was quite often spoken about how, how she was very rarely seen in public in fact so so even if you sort of discount the the bad words said against her and say well maybe they're biased right maybe they're saying these horrible things about her being like a plain woman that i think they called her at one point and stuff like that maybe if you say okay their bias is against her gender and her class and education and whatnot the fact that she just actually was very rarely seen in public you know, I mean, you can't be charismatic if no one can see you. So, you know, that, that, that doesn't need, that doesn't have any bias, right? So, so I think, generally speaking, I think it's fairly safe to assume that, yeah, she was, if not completely uncharismatic, she was just absent a lot of the time. And, it, and, it, and to get to the point, the thing I found really interesting was how this South Cotian sort of belief was really driven by the printing press and how like the evolution of print and the, how it became more accessible really drove the South Cotian movement. And if it, if it wasn't for this kind of evolution of the printing press and, and the industrialization of it all, she would have probably failed because she was just not a very 
charismatic person or, or say at the very least absent. And I found that really interesting. I think that's a really interesting, like if you, if you say, if you want to go back and look up Joanna Southcott and, and get into sort of the more nitty gritty details of it, you know, like the, the, the real kind of details of certain elements, I think that's a really interesting path to go down in terms of research. Um, yeah, is it, it, the kind of history of the printing press around the Southcottian movement and the way the kind of expansion of that really went hand in hand with the expansion of these kind of small religious movements. Harry Price was convinced that the box that he opened was the real box. He's convinced that without a doubt or without a shadow of a doubt, it's Joanna Southcott's box or something like that. Say just as a, a rough paraphrase, but but he he definitely is adamant that it's Joanna Southcott's box that he opened. Um, that having said that, I can sort of get on board the Panacea Society there when they say that you know they criticised him for being a publicist, which Harry Price definitely was. So was that Joanna Southcott's box? I don't know. She apparently left this box and would she have been carting around a gun? I, I don't know, maybe. It seems weird if, it, if that was her box, why the Panacea Society spent the next sort of four decades campaigning to open one that they apparently had. I'm inclined to believe that Price was just given a box of junk and he, he kind of publicised it a little bit. Um, and it probably had nothing to do with Joanna Southcott at all especially when you look at the origin story the origin story of that box is pretty loose and vague and tenuous the link from joanna to the guy that sent it to harry price it it, it is pretty murky why would these servants have ended up with this box and then why would they have given it to him it's it's very yeah i don't know i'm not sure i can believe that really so i i I think that harry price was probably being a bit of a publicist there and I, and I don't think it probably was her box which does lead me to believe that there probably is a box out there somewhere in Bedford waiting for someone to open it do I believe it's gonna save the world absolutely not but I do think there probably is a box out there that did belong to Joanna Southcott at some point that is probably waiting to be opened and, and I, I guess probably never will be opened at this point um whether you know supposedly someone knows its location and it's a big secret and and, but yeah i don't think it's gonna do much whether it gets opened or not so that's pretty much sums up my thoughts on that episode and you know my thoughts on, on making that episode i hope you enjoyed it i hope as always you um you found it interesting and um yeah that's about that if you would like to let me know your thoughts on the episode you can do so as always, uh, hit me up on any social media. That's fine. Dark Histories is on all of them. Um, if you go to darkhistories.com, you'll find all the links uh, to the social media. You just search Dark Histories in the social media or, you know, whatever. You'll find us, the one with the butterfly. Um, otherwise, you can email me, contact at darkhistories.com. Uh, you can also find links to all the things like, you know, the shop, the ways that you can support, which, um, you know, all your support is is greatly received uh, last episode i mentioned about the t-shirt designs i've had a really really good response from that and there are so many artists who are unbelievably good and who have sent me emails and i've uh, you know with links to their their websites and their their instagrams and stuff and it's just like just so good there is so much like just blew me away like the level of talent out there um and and i haven't got back to anyone yet because i'm kind of trying to collate the emails into one place um but i'll be getting in touch with um everyone who emailed me soon um because yeah it just incredible um level of work some of them literally floored me like how good they were um some of them just got me so excited with how good they were so yeah i'll be getting in touch with you soon Aside from that, yeah, thanks very much for listening. Take care and sleep tight.
welcome back again. Thank you very much for 